What's up, everybody? Welcome to listen this edition of Ground Health Podcast. I'm your host Sonia Miettinen, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about dysmenorrhea or menstrual pain. In other words, I made a small-scale survey that focused on menstrual-related symptoms, absenteeism, as well as some simple questions about dietary habits associated, especially to sugar and coffee intake. And to what extent women do use nutrition as a tool to optimize their menstrual cycle? Before we go into this, I would like to start by giving a huge thank you for a Swedish non-governmental organization called Menesen, or in English, period. And they helped me to spread the word about the questionnaire, which I'm very happy and thankful for. You can check them out on Instagram or on their website and I will put the name uh, in the description so check it out. You will find the timestamps in the description below and in general I would say that the discussion is going to focus on the survey results um, and some studies around um, these, um, these findings in the beginning of the podcast meanwhile towards the end Towards the middle of the podcast, the discussion goes more into the nutrition aspects. If we now go more into the topic of this podcast, I would say that it was interesting to see to what extent these women have menstrual-related symptoms and what kind of symptoms women have and how they deal with them. Also, how the period pain affects productivity and being able to attend at the workplace. And when it comes to nutrition, sugar consumption and caffeine was something I stumbled upon in several articles about dysmenorrhea. And that is also the reason why I wanted to especially get some information about to what extent women do consume these two, sugar and caffeine. Menstrual cycle and appetite is also something that may change during menstrual cycle. And therefore, the questionnaire included a question about these changes. Women who have, for example, hormonal intrauterine device IUD had, of course, harder time to answer to this questionnaire. This woman could still, of course, answer, but questions about menstrual pain, etc., were related to how their menstruation used to be before the use of contraception. There was uh, 35 women who answered to the survey, uh, a relatively small selection, but given a short time frame, the result can still give some understanding about the situation. But before we jump into the results, let's talk first about dysmenorrhea and what it is. Dysmenorrhea is considered as moderate to extreme pain during menstruation. And the most common symptoms are pelvic or lower abdominal pain, back pain, diarrhea or nausea. And these symptoms usually start at the time of menstruation. Uh, Dysmenorrhea occurs in the lower abdomen or pelvis during menstruation and it is experienced by 60 to 70 percent of women. And of course, dysmenorrhea can have a negative impact on the quality of life for many women and girls. It can negatively affect relationships, 
academic and work performance and other social and recreational activities. We can classify dysmenorrhea in two categories, primary dysmenorrhea and secondary dysmenorrhea. And the primary occurs in adolescence, shortly after the first occurrence of menstruation. And it is defined as painful menstruation, but without any underlying macroscopic pelvic pathology. Overproduction of uterine prostaglandin is seen as the primary pathogenesis for primary dysmenorrhea. And these prostaglandins play a role in various processes of female reproduction as well in promoting and resolving inflammation. Secondary dysmenorrhea, on the other hand, is mostly due to an identifiable pathological conditions, conditions such as um, endometriosis or pelvic inflammatory disease compared to primary Dysmenorrhea, secondary dysmenorrhea usually onsets after several years after the first occurrence of menstruation. If we jump right into the survey results, the first questions were about cycle length, um, how much pain um, they usually have during that period, uh, how heavy bleeding they do have, for example. And the majority 67 um, or 24 persons or women answered their cycle is 26 to 30 days um, and 51% plead five days in average, uh, 23% plead six days and 40% four days. And I would say five days is typical during menstruation. Three to eight, uh, three to eight days is considered normal. But in general, we can see from the result that um, majority bleed five days in average. 71%, uh, which was 25%, say that their period comes around the same time every month. Meanwhile, 29, which was 10%, said it varies somewhat or a lot. But in general, yes, uh, majority of the uh, women had uh, their period coming around the same time. Also, 71% um, or 25 persons have heavy pleading one to two days um, and 20% um, three to four days, which is almost during the whole menstruation if we expect it to last five days in general. And the bleeding tends to be heaviest, of course, in the first two days. I did not ask anything related to Corona, um, but recently there has been ongoing discussion about the COVID and menstruation link. And some women have noticed changes in their menstrual cycle length after COVID vaccination or after having had COVID. And several studies show that yes, changes to menstrual cycle do occur following vaccination. However, a study by Edelman and their colleagues points out that uh, they are small and short-lived. Some women 
have had unusual amounts of clots in their menstrual discharge or in the blood. Um, they have had longer cycle uh, or shorter cycle. Um, they have had changes in cycle volume. Um, periods returning no matter they use contraceptive medication. And getting more symptoms and PMS can negatively, of course, affect a woman's quality of life. It is just not about, not about uh, the physical symptoms. It's also the mental stress as some may experience lack of medical support on the issue. This was a side note uh, to the results, um, but let's move on to the next question, which was about how women alleviate their menstrual pain. And here prescribed free painkillers got the most answers. And this was actually what I was expecting it to be. Um, and it was followed by um, using something warm, uh, warmth, uh, rest and training. Nothing, um, I mean, not using anything uh, to alleviate the pain. And then we also had prescribed painkillers. There were also a couple of other answers as well, uh, such as onani, sex, tense and yoga positions. And I want to say a couple of words about TENS, which is transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. And there are actually a whole bunch of studies um, about TENS. Uh, it is a non-invasive, uh, pretty inexpensive um, portable method with minimal risks. Uh, for example, Gabitson and Kalikman uh, concluded in their review that TENS has its potential value in reducing pain and symptoms related to primary dysmenorrhea, uh, but also when it comes to improving uh, quality of life uh, for women um, and also uh, helping decreasing the use of uh, painkillers uh, during the menstruation. But let's get back to the results. Um, the next question was about medical care and menstruation. And here, 31%, which was 11 persons, said that they have sought medical care. Um, 46%, which was 16 persons, haven't. And 24, uh, no, uh, I'm sorry, 23%, uh, which was 8 persons, uh, haven't feel uh, they have uh, to do that, uh, to seek any kind of like medical care to, uh, due to their uh, menstrual-related symptoms. Um, almost half of the women haven't sought medical care. And I personally feel that many might feel that their pain isn't maybe severe enough or that having pain is totally normal. Um, of course, there probably are women who, who don't have, uh, pain that, um, that need, um, that they need that they need an urge to uh, to search medical care, um, but it can of course for for some women uh, be very confusing uh, when menstrual pain is so complex, and uh, it involves other symptoms than just pelvic pain. Um, it can include mental symptoms. Um, it can include GI symptoms, fatigue, headache. You name it. And um, from this, we can continue to contraception.
Um, and here it was actually the majority, 71%, which was 23 persons, uh, doesn't use any contraception. And that I was actually a bit, um, surprised by, by, by this result. Um, but those who do use, uh, do use, um, contraception, uh, they use mainly hormone, IUD. Um, it was 11%. Um, 11% uses also contraceptive pills. Um, alternatively, some use contraceptive implant, uh, though it was a minority, only 6%, which was two persons. If we proceed to pain severity, um, it was measured with visual analog scale, VAS, and it scores from 0 to 10. So zero indicating the absence of pain and then being the worst possible pain. More precisely, one to four is considered mild pain, five to seven moderate pain and eight to 10 severe pain. And the results didn't show a clear trend there. Uh, 11%, which was four persons answered, they have no pain at all. 40% had mild pain, it was 40 persons, um, 37%, which was 30 per persons, had moderate pain, and 12%, which was 4 persons, had severe pain. So mild to moderate pain seemed to dominate among these women. When asked how the pain has been at its worst, during the past three months, the majority answered the pain has been seven on scale from zero to 10. So this is considered as severe pain. Um, however, 34% um, answered that um, they have had mild pain. 40% answered that they have had moderate pain. Um, and 21% severe pain. So it was, uh, severe pain was, um, classified as, um, from eight to 10. But in general, um, still the majority answered that the worst pain has been, um, seven on a scale from zero to 10. Uh, 94% had no menstruation related diagnosis. Um, only two had either fibroids or cysts. When it comes to symptoms during menstruation, um, fatigue, pelvic pain, gastrointestinal symptoms, tender breasts, back pain, heavy bleeding, and headache led to race. And there are some individual comments also. Um, some women experience that they are tired all the time. Some experience that they are hungry all the time. Some have difficulties to concentrate and think clearly. Um, some have anxiety. Some say that they shake due to pain and cold. So what we can clearly see is that the symptoms can vary very much. Um, they can be very multifaceted. Um, both including uh, mental symptoms, but also very physical symptoms. 
if we go from symptoms during menstruation to productivity, uh, the questions about productivity during menstruation gave pretty varying results. And the scale was between 0 to 10. 0 being not able to do anything and then 10 being basically fully productive. And out of 35 women, six persons said that their productivity was eight, uh, which is considered high. Um, however, six uh, persons also said their productivity was as low as two. So productivity varied between two and eight, uh, five um, having the least number of answers. One person answered her productivity was zero, and three persons reported their productivity was 10 during menstruation. I would like to say a couple of words about a nationwide cross-sectional survey among over 32,000 women. Uh, and this study or survey evaluated age-dependent productivity loss caused by menstruation-related symptoms. And it uh, it was measured in absenteeism, which is time away from work or school, and presentation, which is productivity loss while present at work or school. And according to, to this study, women under 21 years old were more likely to report absenteeism due to menstruation-related symptoms. And this is also something that I saw in my results, um, considering uh, the, young, the, the women who were younger had um, reported um, higher numbers of absenteeism. Studies also show that women with menstrual-related symptoms have lower scores on several areas of quality of life, and this includes general health and physical, mental, social and work-related functioning during their periods. And when we take all symptoms into consideration, it seems likely that the real impact of menstrual-related symptoms is underestimated in the general population, of course. And the question is how women affected by menstrual-related problems could be held best and how their productivity could be improved in order to reduce the societal impact regarding absenteeism and presenteeism. There is also one other thing uh, which is worth mentioning, and it is that dysmenorrhea is often reported among women with work-related stress or pressure. And this, of course, indicates that it is motivated to find ways to decrease the stress burden. So now when we are in, into, into this stress discussion here, let's move into absenteeism, um, menstrual-related absenteeism. Um, if we look at the, my, my uh, questionnaire or my survey, uh, here it was 80% um, answered they have never been on a sick leave due to their menstruation symptoms. Uh, 10 persons, uh, which was roughly uh, 29%, have not worked uh, between a half day and three days. 
um, during their menstruation. Uh, over 50% have also attended work even though they have had menstruation problems. And when asked about um, the reason that um, women gave um, for their absence um, from work, 11% gave an alternative reason for their absence um, and it was something else than menstruation pain or it was other symptoms that were related to that. 17% uh, told the real reason. Uh, majority though, uh, which was 71%, um, said that they don't give any reason or that they only tell the symptom they have, for example, if it's headache or whether it's stomachache. Next, if we ask what measures would women prefer at the workplace in terms of menstruation problems, uh, before going into the results, I want to actually want to say a couple of words about Rachel B. Levitt and Jessica L. Barnak Tavlaris, who have written Menstruation in the Workplace, the Menstrual Leave Debate. And as the title says, um, they discuss this dilemma about work and menstruation. And what they write in their introduction uh, is as follows. So this is from, from, from their introduction that I'm going to read now. Menstrual leave, which allows a menstruator to take time off if they are unable to attend work due to menstruation, is a policy that could affect menstruators in many ways, including their status in the workplace. The question is whether such a policy would benefit or disadvantage a uh, menstruator's well-being. In spite of progressive aims, could menstrual leave policies actually increase discrimination and negative attitudes toward menstruators? So what's, uh, what's also mentioned in the text um, is, for example, in Japan, menstrual leave policy allows any female worker to use leave if she experiences physical distress from menstruation. However, Women who used leave for this purpose were faced with negative consequences, including discrimination and harassment by employers. What happened is that the government proposed the removal of menstrual leave from the law to safeguard female workers from discrimination, but this led to tension between women's labor unions <clears throat> and the government. So, Implementing a menstrual leave in a workplace is not so black and white. In the text, uh, Rachel and Jessica uh, discuss also several other international examples uh, when it comes to menstrual leave uh, in workplaces. What majority of women who answered my survey uh, hoped was to be able to work from home or have a day off without consequences in case of menstrual-related symptoms. Um, other uh, wishes um, that ranked high were also flexibility to do work that isn't as physically demanding um, 
and also that women would have more time for personal care. And when it comes to the text by Rachel and Jessica, they do highlight um, that given the existence of diverse menstrual leave policies across the globe, and also the current discussion of whether or not to extend such policies, it's it's also important to think critically about both the potential benefits and drawbacks that could result from implementing, for example, menstrual leave. But I think that it's not um, it's not the question about whether or not uh, to implement a menstrual leave, but it's rather how it's implemented. And um, as the the text also highlights um, some some possible drawbacks um, and different uh, uh, different examples from different countries uh, where it hasn't worked so well. Um, so I think that there is uh, we need to le- learn from from these experiences and find other ways how to make it work, both for the individual and um, for the for the bigger picture, of course. But now let's move on to diet and let's look at breakfast intake and dysmenorrhea. Very few said um, in my survey uh, that they eat breakfast zero to one or two to three times per week. And it was only five persons. Um, What is interesting though is that these women uh, reported that they always have pain during their period. Uh, The pain is severe between 8 to 10, um, and productivity on these days varies between 0 to 4 on a scale from 0 to 10. So women who ate, um, didn't eat breakfast uh, or just a, just a few times uh, per week had more pain during the period and their productivity, productivity um, was much lower. There are several studies that also show the association between dysmenorrhea and breakfast intake. Uh, For example, Helva and colleagues um, showed that having breakfast was the strongest predictor of intensity of dysmenorrhic pain. The relationship between intensity of pain during menstruation and breakfast intake has been discussed in several other studies, one of them being an article published in Japan where the results show that young women who skip breakfast seem to have higher intensity of menstrual-related pain than those who had breakfast on a regular basis. So skipping breakfast due to, for example, loops uh, could therefore have long-term negative effects on reproductive function, especially in young women. There are studies that show the association between, for example, processed foods um, and dysmenorrhea. Uh, but in this study by Helva and colleagues, um, when it comes to factors such as BMI, physical activity, smoking, and consumption of salty and sweet food, um, the study found no relationship within any of these variables and dysmenorrhea or its pain intensity. So. Um, it feels like there are still a lot of uh, contradict- contradictive results when it comes to, uh, for example, these factors that was named BMI, physical activity, smoking, uh, processed food. Um, there are studies that show 
sell a connection and there are studies that doesn't sell the connection as as this um, study by Helva uh, showed us. But when it comes to appetite, a study from 2020 by Matsura and colleagues look at change in appetite and food craving during menstrual cycle in young students. And here they had 311 female students who answered a questionnaire that consisted of questions about self-assessment of premenstrual symptoms as well as changes in appetite and food intake during menstrual cycle. And 86% reported that they had increased appetite before menstruation. 40% had increased appetite during menstruation and only 3% after menstruation. My results in terms of increased appetite showed a similar trend. 25 participants out of 35 had increased appetite before menstruation. 14% had um, increased appetite during menstruation and two persons had increased appetite after menstruation. No one had decreased appetite uh, before menstruation, but 11 said that they had decreased appetite during menstruation and six after menstruation. 25 persons said that they felt no difference in appetite after menstruation. If we look at hormonal fluctuation associated with the menstrual cycle, uh, these fluctuations influence appetite control and eating behavior. Energy intake varies during the reproductive cycle and several studies report especially carbohydrate cravings. There's a study by Dye and Plandel, and they conclude in an article published in Human Reproduction that fluctuations in appetite, energy intake and cravings may occur at the same time as cyclical rhythms in serotonin. And low serotonin activity could be actually one underlying factor to food cravings, but also depression and overconsumption of food. So why do many women end up having these cravings? So serotonin is a mediating factor in the relationship between mood and appetite. Lower levels of serotonin may affect mood negatively. And craving for especially um, for carb-rich foods occur in order to raise the levels, the low levels of serotonin in the brain. And therefore the craving could be an adaptive mechanism of the body to compensate the low levels premenstrually. And that is why consuming carbs functions almost like a self-medication to raise mood. And the reason why it is important to maintain um, a good level of serotonin um, is of course because it's regulate and enhance mood. Um, also it has a bunch of other um, uh, other functions, um, including sleep, um, stomach and intestinal and bowel health, sexual functioning, also bone strength and density, um, blood clotting, wound healing. Um, and in other words, low serotonin may be, of course, behind many of the symptoms of depression or anxiety. Um, it can cause mood swings, um, that you are very impulsive or irritate, irritable um, all of a sudden. 
Uh, and of course, as I mentioned before, um, low levels can be the reason behind sugar and other, other junk food uh, cravings. And uh, there is, of course, a reason that um, balanced serotonin levels affect mood and well-being. Um, and as this um, transmitter serotonin is uh, associated with regenerated sleep um, and different learning functions and memory, um, healthy digestion and appetite re- regulation. And there are ways how to increase serotonin naturally. And this includes foods that boost serotonin and tryptophan, sunlight and being in nature, avoiding sugar, exercise, meditation, um, and even getting a massage. But when it comes to foods um, that boost serotonin, uh, serotonin foods are those that contain the amino acid tryptophan, which then converts into serotonin in the brain. And foods um, rich in protein uh, are, are one of the uh, examples um, how to increase serotonin. And this could be meat, uh, poultry, like turkey and chicken. Salmon is a good example of a lean protein rich in tryptophan. Eggs as well in, in different forms, hard-boiled, poached. Um, for vegetarians and vegans, soy, tofu. Uh, though I would still be very, very careful with any kind of soy products. Mm, dairy, such as milk and cheese, they do contain tryptophan. Nuts and seeds um, are also serotonin boosters, though taking uh, that uh, the omega-6 intake in general in population is pretty high. Also, nuts and seeds can be very hard for digestion. I would be careful uh, with nuts and seeds and also some fruits actually are um, um, could be included in order to increase serotonin that would be pineapples and bananas um, even creamy leafy vegetables and avocados i did also ask women if menstrual related problems affect what they eat and 46%, which was 16 persons, said that yes, menstrual related problems affect what they eat. Um, 31%, that was 11 person, said no, menstrual related problems do not affect uh, their eating in any ways. And 23%, uh, which was eight persons, said that they don't know. And of course, now we don't have uh, uh, the answer how um, menstrual-related problems or dysmenorrhea, for example, affect um, women's eating habits um, or eating patterns. Um, but one one important uh, aspect is uh, probably appetite um, and the, the change, uh, changes in in women's appetite. Uh, progesterone um, is especially a hormone that is at its peak just before before your period and it is associated with the bigger appetite. As such, you might feel hungrier uh, at that time. Uh, plus also if, if your mood is very low, you might might feel the need for comfort food. And as the results showed, some women had, 
or the the majority of women had increase in appetite before menstruation um also during menstruation uh, not as much not as um much as uh, before menstruation uh but also it's important to notion that some women um had also decreased appetite before menstruation um and especially during menstruation and if you haven't decreased appetite during your menstruation that is also likely to affect your eating um and which foods you choose or if you choose to eat at all uh especially if the pain is very severe um it is quite obvious that appetite is most likely going to decrease another interesting finding was when i ask whether women adapt their diet according to their menstrual cycle and here the results showed that 69% which was 24 persons answered no they don't adapt their diet according to their menstrual cycle and um, 23 women uh, which was eight persons uh, answered yes they do adapt and 9% which was three persons said that they don't know and yes it it looks like eating eating patterns uh, fluctuate or change uh, depending on if a woman has dysmenorrhea or whether um a woman has any other menstrual related problems but when it comes to adapt uh, when it comes to adapting your diet according to your menstrual cycle it's still looks like there is uh, some sort of a knowledge gap um and um in in a public realm there is not that much discussion about about the diet um and the association with menstrual cycle for example which uh could be also reflected uh, in the results um why many women do not um adapt their diet according to their menstrual cycle cycle but how about coffee coffee is something many are consuming on a regular basis and often also in large quantities and the question is how does caffeine affect your menstrual pain i also asked this question considering caffeine intake um, and the participants could choose between rarely low intake high intake or very high intake and 50 four percent uh it was 19 persons out of 35 answered that they have high or very high intake of caffeinated beverages if we then looked at the uh, look at the menstrual pain in scale from 0 to 10 12 participants out of 19 reported that they had moderate or severe pain so these persons had also a very high intake of caffeine and similar findings were seen in the study that look at the consumption of sugary foods and severity of menstrual pain women who reported consumption of caffeinated beverages also reported significantly higher pain than those who did not and interestingly when it comes to tea consumption um but there is a large population based study by chang and colleagues 
And the study showed that tea drinking, especially green tea and possibly oolong tea, um, were associated with the lower prevalence of dysmenorrhea. And what the authors highlighted was that consumption of coffee was instead positively related to the severity of dysmenorrhea. So more coffee could be causing more menstruation pain. The authors referred to a previous study that showed that the risk of dysmenorrhea was twice as high in caffeine uh, consumers. Um, and here it was over 300 milligrams per day compared with low or moderate caffeine consumers, which would be uh, less than 300 milligrams per day. And one possible mechanism why caffeine could cause cramp-like pain is the vasoconstricting action of caffeine. And that is when the muscles around your blood vessels tighten uh, to make the space inside smaller. So less blood, uh, blood and oxygen can flow through blood vessels and caffeine can prevent oxygen uh, from uh, reaching the uterus. And this leads to frequent and intense, intense menstrual pain. Um, a study in pregnant women indicates, uh, this was another study, uh, that caffeine stimulates uterine muscles and consequently causes increased uterine cont uh, contractions. So this uterine hypercontraction then reduces blood flow and results in pain. And the mechanism how caffeine affects menstrual cycle is, yes, it's still unclear, but it could occur via an effect on sex hormones or hormone receptors, as stated by uh, Mahmoud uh, and colleagues in a study. Uh, what is interesting is that another study found that coffee constituents are weakly estrogenic. So caffeine inhibits the action of adenosine, uh, which affects luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone, which could in turn affect the length of the menstrual cycle. Uh, there was a NIH study uh, that has also shown that caffeine consumption is linked to estrogen changes. However, of course, there are several other studies that have not uh, found uh, indications that caffeine intake is related to cycle length, but it's still very interesting um, um, whether uh, the estrogenic um, effect of caffeine um, is uh, affecting uh, menstrual pain for women for who um, consume large amounts of um, or quantities of caffeine. But how about sugar? There's a study by Monday um, and colleagues published in 2019. And in the study, they aim to investigate the effects of certain diets on the prevalence and severity of dysmenorrhea in colleagues, students. Um, they found no relationship between diet and the incidence and severity of dysmenorrhea amongst the participants. However, it appears that diet high in sugars might be something to pay an extra attention to, which um, really doesn't uh, surprise me. And in this study, uh, correlating sugary food intake and pain intensity showed that participants who reported consuming sugar frequently also reported more pain as compared to other groups, which will be those who had moderate intake or rarely consume sugary foods. 
Um, however, it's important to know this uh, or, or to say that the, the difference um, was not statistically uh, significant in this study. And when it comes to the results um, I got uh, from my from my small survey, um, uh, the uh, the survey showed or the results showed a similar trend in terms of pain and consumption of sugary foods. There were seven women out of 35 who reported high or very high intake of sugar, and four of these women had also moderate or severe menstrual pain. 21 women uh, had moderate intake, and nine of these participants said they have moderate to severe pain. Another study by Najafi and colleagues showed that the snacks pattern was associated with risk of dysmenorrhea. And the pattern in this study was characterized by a high sugar intake as well as high consumption of salty snacks, sweets and desserts, tea and coffee, salt, fruit juices and added fat. Um, snacks or often also called junk food provide suboptimal nutrition and excessive energy, fat, sugar and sodium as, as the author also states. And consuming these foods in excess can decrease the intake of other nutrient-dense foods, which results then in low intakes and low serum concentrations of most micronutrients, nutrients, um, for example, um, vitamin E, um, B6, and calcium. So eating wisely is, of course, important here. And uh, this means uh, saying no or just pushing away uh, those sugary foods uh, and uh, saying no to sweets and simple carbs. Um, this includes white rice and white bread um, because they quickly raise blood sugar and flood you with insulin. And then after a while, pretty fast, you will drop in a hole again. Um, and this is also uh, important in terms of caffeine intake um, as caffeine, as we talked about, um, caffeine suppresses serotonin. So if you need to drink or you want to drink coffee, um, save it at least after, after the meal. And of course, there are limited studies that have investigated the association between dietary patterns and dysmenorrhea. And there are also a ton of other factors to look at, such as fatty acid intake, omega-6 to 3 ratio, fat intake, protein intake, lectins, oxalates, phytoestrogens, processed food, fiber, dairy, histamine, and so on. And some of these topics I'll be discussing in another episode. Um, but for now, uh, feel free to contact me if you have any questions or thoughts, you find me on Instagram as Sonia Miettinen. And that's about it. Stay healthy and see you soon again.